Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, Online Patient Simulations, a New Era of EMS Training in the COVID-19 Pandemic, features Meg Carmen and is sponsored by iSimulate. Hello, and welcome to the latest in EMS World series of special webinars on topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's presentation is Online Patient Simulations, a New Era of EMS Training in the COVID-19 Pandemic. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World, and we're happy to have you joining us today. We would like to thank iSimulate for sponsoring today's presentation. During the webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speaker by using the question submission section on your screen. And at the end of the presentation, we will try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the time allowed. Today, we're very pleased to welcome our featured speaker, Dr. Margaret Carmen, is clinical associate professor in the School of Nursing at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is also Director of Emergency Nursing Advanced Practice for the Emergency Nurses Association. Dr. Carmen's interest in online curriculum development for acute care led to her research on development of effective distance-based simulations for acute care nurse practitioner students, which was published in the journal Dimensions of Critical Care Nursing, and we're very happy to have her joining us today. With that introduction, I will turn it over to our presenter, Dr. Carmen. Thanks again for joining us today, and please take it away. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm excited to get together with my EMS colleagues and talk about an opportunity for online patient simulation, especially in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, where we're trying to take healthcare professions and educate uh, new individuals who are coming into practice in a field where we typically rely very heavily on patient simulation. The objectives for the webinar uh, will be to examine the use of virtual simulation software uh, to try and reach across the miles and provide realistic distance simulation for healthcare students. So we'll probably always want to have these times when we can get together in the simulation lab uh, to one-on-one -on -one work through health uh, issues with healthcare students and, and engage with them in problem-based learning. But particularly now, we're seeing that that's not always possible, and perhaps in the future, this is an opportunity to really provide them an even, with an even better education. Uh, we want to develop a plan for providing effective distance-based simulation and promote time-sensitive care management, and that's something that uh, really came to the forefront uh, for me in developing this short presentation on how to do a virtual distance-based simulation. Uh, EMS is out there making extremely high risk, sometimes low frequency and high risk um, decisions. It has to be time sensitive. And if we don't know how to engage in diagnostic reasoning, think about what's going on, 
and uh, immediately form a plan for intervention and management, uh, then we're not going to have a patient. So EMS and the hospital have worked together always, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I'm so pleased to be here, particularly with EMS World, um, using iSimulate, which has such a strong background in the EMS community. Um, we've always worked together and we are so interdependent on one another. So this is an opportunity for us to think about how our learning has uh, so many commonalities and how we can use these strategies together. We're more alike than different, and particularly with uh, acute care students. Uh, our simulation needs for acute care nurse practitioners is that yes, they have to be very time sensitive and then very often they're not going to, in their clinical uh, experiences, in their clinical rotations, going to encounter a lot of those uh, conditions that are high risk but low frequency. So they're going to have to learn how to manage it, but they may not actually see it in their clinical rotations during school. And I'm sure that that is true for you as well in EMS. We need to have something that provides real-time monitoring capabilities, and that was, uh, that was a real uh, challenge for me as I was trying to build an acute care NP program. Many of the softwares, many of the applications that you're looking at for uh, education don't have that monitoring capability, so I was really pleased when I came across iSimulate several years ago. Now, we all need to get those psychomotor skills. We need to build um, our, our skills in terms of things like uh, chest tube insertion or advanced airway management. And that is something that's going to be difficult to do distance-based. So I needed to think around that. And also developing that muscle memory. And the brain needs muscle memory too in terms of very time-sensitive uh, critical care scenarios. And so to do that in a learning platform and to give students the opportunity to practice and practice using distance-based simulation is something that uh, is really attractive. So sometimes you need a real patient, sometimes you don't. And what I'm gonna talk about today uh, includes the use of standardized patients for distance simulations. It's going to be a meeting platform. I tend to use Zoom, I've also used WebEx. Um, but think also about the times when it would be advantageous for you to have a standardized patient and have them uh, participate in the distance-based simulation. But sometimes when you have an unconscious patient or an intubated patient, then you don't need to include that aspect of distance simulation. So I think it helps to understand what an acute care nurse practitioner actually is. A lot of people really don't know. And how does this translate to a discussion on education for the individual learning about emergency management? Well, both individuals need to understand patients with complex and unstable conditions. They need to understand management across the trajectory of care from chronic to acute, and very often we're dealing with patients experiencing acute exacerbation of chronic conditions. Adult gerontology nurse practitioners uh, see patients from 13 years to the end of life, uh, and pediatric nurse practitioners in acute care uh, deal with the, uh, the beginning of life from birth to approximately 17 years of age. But again, it's about the complex and the unstable patient. 
uh, acute care NPs were originally focused on critical care management, but that role has evolved and now includes hospitalists and specialty services. So we kind of need to know everything from soup to nuts, which is exactly what our EMS colleagues are learning, but we focus on stabilizing and getting the patient resuscitated and to the appropriate level of care. So it's not setting-based, it's what you do. And the acute care learning needs, I think this will also look very familiar to you, are in learning appropriate history taking. Uh, so you guys may do a little bit more of an abbreviated, abbreviated history of present illness. We're going to go through uh, old carts, which you probably have learned in your programs or are teaching in your programs, uh, and find out what is the location, what's the duration been, uh, what, are, what are the events that are surrounding the presentation that you see in front of you. They need to gather an appropriate past medical history, past surgical history. It's all very similar to the history that EMS is going to gather and bring to us in the inpatient setting, including possible exposures, substance abuse. There's very little uh, area in which I see a huge difference, other than that we probably get into a little bit more depth and including the family history, which probably isn't always pertinent when you're making an emergency call. We all need to understand the physical assessment, so we need to uh, make sure that they have a solid foundation in, in conducting their physical assessment and doing their exam. And then they engage in diagnostic reasoning, which you guys are doing all the time on the fly, walking in, gathering the history and, and the history of present illness, and thinking to yourself, what is it that I am dealing with, formulating differential diagnoses, and very often intervening very quickly in order to stabilize and resuscitate patients. Now, my guys are also learning about ongoing management and what's happening later on, as well as transitioning care, but we all are engaged in transitioning care and doing that effectively with appropriate communication. Uh, and the ongoing management may be sending them to the ICU uh, or uh, looking at getting them uh, extubated, but that is something that you guys are also thinking about all along the way until you drop the patient off in the emergency department. The challenge for me was figuring out uh, a conduit for performing distance-based simulations. And as you'll see in a moment, I began thinking about this around 2015. I happened to see a presentation of ALSI, the iSimulate uh, software program, when I was uh, teaching at Duke University. And it really intrigued me. The set was designed to, uh, to operate on a single server at that point in time, but I couldn't help but wonder, wasn't there some way to make that leap across the distance. My, my students were all over the world. I had one in Tokyo, I had one in Oregon. And how could I take this and mirror it onto a computer somehow uh, and then reach them with a meeting platform to create a distance-based simulation? This was around 2015 and I, I had these thoughts in my mind. I knew I wanted to promote critical thinking. I knew, knew that they need to learn time-sensitive management. And I also knew that they only came to campus three times in the course of their two-year program and across maybe three days at a time, that would be my only opportunity to engage them in in-person high-fidelity simulation. So I needed to think of something that would supplement it 
uh, and help them in developing their skills. So in 2016, I started thinking about how I might be able to adapt the iSimulate software to reach beyond one server. Uh, and by 2017, uh, with the help of my IT experts at the school, I was able to find some reflector software, which I could purchase, it was about $20, to make it more user-friendly and to take the two iPad system, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, um, but iSimulate uh, uses a facilitator iPad and a student or a monitor iPad, uh, and it is iPad dependent. So I had this Apple software, and I only had PCs in the school that I was working at. So how could I do this? I could uh, purchase the reflector software and screen mirror onto my PC and then use a Zoom or a WebEx platform uh, to, to, um, to invite students in and to engage them in these distance-based simulations. And that's what we started to do initially with WebEx. It was a little clunky. A lot of times we would get thrown off the system because the reflector software would go down. Um, and we persisted and got better at it, but it wasn't perfect. Now in 2020, uh, both WebEx and Zoom have created the ability, if you are doing this, to go down to share and to plug in the student or monitor iPad and you can actually screen share from there. So I'm going to show you today how to do that. So some background on creating the, the simulations. We can get down to the logistics of how you do the iSimulate uh, in a minute. But uh, this, this, the context of this is that I was transitioning in, uh, to an online format for this adult gerontology acute care nurse practitioner program. The program previously had been all on campus they would gather about eight to nine uh, times over a 14 to 15 semester term. Um, and they would come in for a total of three terms where they did these simulations. So very heavily focused on high fidelity in, in the simulation lab simulations. Uh, and there was a lot of anxiety of, uh, among the students with this change. I had strong IT support, so I had people who understood and were savvy with IT. I was the content expert, uh, but I needed help in figuring out how to make this happen. And this is where we developed the format of using the iSimulate, reflecting it with the software, and then going at that time to a WebEx meeting. This is what I wanted it to look like. On the left here, you can see I have the facilitator or the teacher iPad. And then that connects by, by being on the same server with the monitor or the student iPad. And I can manipulate and uh, share different images uh, and change the cardiac rhythm, change any of the par parameters I need to uh, in order to respond to what the students are doing during the simulation. Basically turns the student iPad into a cardiac monitor. It does have uh, CPR capabilities. It does have defibrillation capabilities. Many, many different parameters that have been added even over the last few years. And then I wanna cast that up onto my computer screen. If you think about the way a Zoom or a WebEx platform works, what you would have around there is all the pictures of the different participants. 
to create the distance simulations, I start with learning objectives. So uh, I need to think about what the goal for the simulation is going to be. Is this going to be learning centered? So when I am using my distance-based uh, simulations, I tend to make them learning centered. At the end of the program, they do have an OSCE, and I am thinking of adding in testing centered distance-based simulations for the first two semesters in order to save some travel for the students. Um, and so I'm still, still in the process of evaluating this uh, approach to simulation, but I may go to more testing-centered. So that is up to you to think about, is this going to be learning-centered or testing-centered? If you've seen some of the examples of iSimulate on EMS World, they do the weekly challenges, that is more of a testing environment. They ask you a little clinical question, it's like a little quiz, and you think about what could be going on. Uh, the noise of the monitor beeping, the timing uh, can increase anxiety. And so I tend in my uh, program to do more learning-centered uh, distance simulations given over a one-hour period. But just remember, keep in mind that you could use these for objective structures clinical examinations as well. Uh, the outcomes need to be participant-centered, so directed on what are the behaviors that you are trying to promote in your learners, not so much what you're doing by running the simulation. And it should be aligned with didactic content. So I provide them with recorded lecture the week before. We often have a weekly study session, uh, and then they come into the distance-based simulation ready to practice. So they are going to run the scenario uh, based on the readings, the lecture content, and the discussion that we have had prior. You should consider the time that it's been since the class presentation. You may want to take a couple of weeks of content. For example, um, if you've done endocrine and then you have done renal and you're talking about a patient in rhabdomyolysis, then uh, that might be something that you combine. But you wanna think about how long it's been and what their learning retention, what their knowledge retention may be uh, when they come to the presentation. And then you wanna think about scaffolded learning. So how are you taking and optimally using what they're getting in that lecture content, in their readings and in the discussion to develop the simulation as their final product for practice in a safe environment. I do use standardized patients, and uh, for best practices, I would recommend that you look at the Association of Standardized Patient Educators. I'm gonna have a slide with a few really good resources for developing these distance-based simulations at the conclusion of the webinar here. Uh, they have a very nice case development template, which you can print off, uh, and it helps you to consider how are you going to train and prepare your standardized patients what resources and, and sources do they need uh, to be able to effectively engage with the student, okay? So uh, what information do they need? What cue cards might you need to have available? What props might you need? And what will the role be of the SP in the debriefing process? Because that's valuable feedback for the participants. 
Um, we've had a lot of fun making this more realistic over time and giving good fidelity to our simulations. And over time, I've gotten so that I have the patient in a gown on the uh, WebEx platform, uh, look at the background, make that a little bit more realistic. We have had props with vomitus and blood and everything else um, to make this more realistic and to help them in suspending reality. So then you want to plan uh, the actual simulation itself. You want to think about how many you want to do over uh, uh, an academic term or semester. Two to three is a lot of distance-based uh, simulation. It's a lot of work, especially initially as you're developing the scenarios and thinking about all the resources you need. So be careful that you're not planning to do one every single week. The other thing is I divide these into small groups. I invite probably three to four students in per time. If we were in the simulation center, we would be rotating students through and do this in the course of maybe four to eight hours. Um, if you're having small groups and you're doing distance simulation, that might mean that you end up doing five hours worth of, uh, of simulations uh, over time, and that can be a lot when you're in the online uh, platform. I have thought in the past about having one group be up um, and be in charge for each simulation, and then I could do more simulations but not have it be so labor-intensive with faculty sitting in for, uh, say, five simulations at a time. The simulation event itself, I uh, send them out an invitation to join the Zoom or WebEx meeting. And when they come in, then they're assigned to roles and given expectations as they would according to the Anaxal standards uh, when they come into the room. They need to know uh, how long the simulation is going to run and what is needed of them. For my simulations, I typically assign somebody to be the nurse practitioner. Uh, there will be an attending physician. Uh, there will be a nurse, and very often there will be a respiratory therapist. For EMS, I could see possibly uh, having the, um, the medical director at the hospital be somebody that you're communicating with. Uh, you would want to have a second person, perhaps a paramedic and an intermediate EMT. Perhaps uh, the first responders are the uh, uh, fire department that got there uh, initially. So you want to think about, in your particular situation, what would be the roles that you would have people filling in the distance simulation. I do not tend to use family members and bystanders for my purposes, but that would be something else to think about. We then conduct the actual simulation. Uh, so we start off and one person is the, the leader, the nurse practitioner for our purposes. And then we follow that by a debriefing that is typically about uh, 30 to 40 minutes. So a typical simulation is going to run 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, the debriefing, uh, about 35 to 40 minutes. And then they finish that by going home, reflecting on it, and I have a rubric where they evaluate their learning through a case analysis. They go through each step and say, what went well, what didn't go so well, what could I do better in the future, and how would I apply the content from my lectures? The content itself to build the distance-based simulation, I, I build a PowerPoint presentation as I would if I was gonna be in the classroom. And then I take photos with the iPad, with the camera from the iPad, and I save that onto the iSimulate scenario, as I'll show you in a moment. 
So the first PowerPoint uh, that I, the slide that I create is an introduction to the scenario, just what you're called to the scene for. Um, and then I give them the HPI information that I want them to get while leaving uh, the, the data that I want them to collect off. And then I'll have the answers to that on the next slide. I give them any pertinent history, but I want to always want to make sure that they're asking the pertinent positives and negatives. And then I can also on the iSimulate uh, save photos of EKGs, as you can see here. I can get chest x-rays, CT images, MRI, etc. You can get photos. Um, for example, if I'm doing the trauma simulation, I'll have pictures of the scene, damage to the vehicle, intrusion into the, 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 uh, the um, compartments, and that really helps bring the simulation to life. And in terms of labs, and you probably will have less labs, but you certainly have data that you're going to bring in. Um, you can use the iSimulate templates. For example, if you have an iStat on your truck, you could have an iStat on there. Um, you can either do that, or you can create a PowerPoint slide and put in your own data there and just show them the image. So this is an example of the, the opening to my trauma simulation. I've taken a photo of my PowerPoint slide there, and then I've uh, save that into iSimulate and then given it to the students over the monitor iPad there. And you can see it's on my, uh, my laptop. On the left here, you'll see what you would uh, find for the facilitator iPad, what the screen looks like there. Uh, you can go up to the top left there and click on scenario and build a custom scenario. I would suggest that for each class that you're teaching that you, uh, that you open up and, and create a folder for that. And then you can put all the simulations for that particular class under that folder. So I've called this Sarah Collins, that's my, my trauma folder. Uh, and you can see on the left there, for each of these parameters, I've uh, clicked on the, the plus sign there. Uh, and then I've selected either a quick pick where I can choose a cardiac rhythm, I can uh, make it so that there's an interval and a time over which that rhythm will occur. I can pick uh, different templates to build my labs, or I can create an image gallery, which is where I take the picture, save it, and draw that from my photo gallery on the iPad to use that where I want it in the simulation. If you want to adjust where in the simulation your different images or quick picks are going to be presented, then you can go up and down and adjust that using the arrows up in the left-hand corner there. So that's how I get it all ready to go for my students. Uh, and then on the right, you'll see what the student is actually going to see when I turn on the simulation and press go. Just remember, for each change in the parameters that you are uh, using, you're going to have to press go or else the student won't see it. In building the scenario, uh, like I said, you want to uh, create that folder for yourself. Uh, I've given you some steps here for just simply signing into the iPad. One of the big mistakes you'll make is it's not working. Well, you're not on the network, so make sure that both your, your facilitator or teacher or student monitor iPad are both uh, signed in to the internet. 
Um, you may have some difficulty. Some big systems, hospital systems, universities will block uh, uh, screen sharing or, or uh, the video. Uh, so if you get the iSimulate kit, it comes with an airport router. And if you're having difficulty with that, some type of an airport router will allow the two to connect. And that also will facilitate uh, your screen sharing on the computer. Once you build a scenario, remember to always hit save before you exit out of it. Uh, you can use that iPad to take the screenshots and, and select the, the gallery. And you can see here where I had a blank template where I started building my scenario, uh, giving the patient name, the name of the scenario, perhaps hyperglycemic crisis, something like that. And then you can begin to build your custom scenarios and then place it in your folder. So again, make sure they're both on the same server. Um, I've got step-by-step -step directions here uh, for setting up your initial settings. Um, and then you just simply want to click on go. So for the actual simulation event, uh, go and open up your meeting room with WebEx or Zoom before the participants arrive. You can hover over the toolbar at the bottom of the screen and select share screen. Uh, you should have the student iPad plugged into the USB port uh, with a lightning cable. And uh, at that point, the, uh, the WebEx or Zoom meeting will ask you to select iPad. There isn't a plugin that you may have to uh, open up and, and upload and, and download and run, um, but it's really pretty easy and it will cue you to do so uh, spontaneously. On the student iPad, then you want to swipe upwards and it will ask you to select screen share. And you simply click on that and the next thing you know, uh, the iPad is mirrored on your Zoom meeting in the center of the screen. Then you can admit your students in and they will all appear around the uh, iSimulate image that looks like a cardiac monitor. And that would include bringing in your standardized patient. I always introduce the patients first, uh, the students to the patient first, uh, let them uh, get started and uh, kind of go from there. But you want to let them know who their standardized patient is and who they're going to be talking to. They should talk directly to that person. So you're going to welcome them. You're going to assign the roles. Uh, some of the expectations that you should give them are uh, what, that this is a learning opportunity. This is not going to be a test today. Take the pressure off. Make this a safe space. Um, tell them that although one person is assigned to be the NP for this specific distance-based simulation, that it's okay and give them permission to join in, to make suggestions, or to assist the lead, particularly if they kind of get lost. Uh, and let them know how long they're going to be in the, uh, in the simulation and what the endpoint is. For me, they will resuscitate the patient, they'll get a pulse back, they'll check a blood pressure, and then they'll leave the patient in the emergency department uh, till they, they finally die of natural causes uh, because they forgot to write a disposition order and send them to the intensive care unit. So make sure that they understand what their end point is and what the plan is for debriefing once they get to that end point. During the simulation, I set specific stopping points. I will stop them for deliberate pauses and generally that is going to be centered around what the differentials are. 
after the HPI, they should have a very broad list of differentials. We'll talk about the prioritization, and then we'll quickly get back into the sim. Uh, after the exam, I will stop them and just do a very brief pause and say, okay, have the differentials changed? Have we gotten, have we eliminated any? Uh, what is our top differential now? Boom. And then we'll go on to diagnostic results. I will often have for them several things, including EKG, chest X-ray. Um, so stopping and pausing to say, has anything changed? We now see that we have a STEMI. Uh, do we really need to wait for the troponin? Not in the emergency department either, that's a STEMI. So for you guys, uh, I'm sure that there are going to be many similarities. You wanna guide the group towards the disposition if they're thinking about, you know, oh, what do we do from here? Uh, they may need to have some guidance from the faculty. Let's think about what the endpoint is. Okay, are we ready to make a disposition? For you, uh, that maybe do we go to the trauma center? Do we go to the interventional cardiology center? Um, but you wanna have some type of a clear endpoint. And during the brief, the debrief, they're always beating themselves up. So you start out with what went well, uh, but uh, don't hesitate to congratulate the team and to recognize that this, even if it's not a testing scenario, can be very stressful. It's supposed to be a safe place, but they often don't feel that way. And they also feel a little bit disconnected because of that distance. They're not face-to-face. -face. They're not standing right next to their colleagues. And if it didn't go well, uh, take some time to console the team and think about, isn't it great that this was a safe space and that we can talk about what we learned, what didn't, didn't happen, uh, and what we would do the next time. You want to always relate the didactic content during that debrief. Uh, you want to find out what the student perspective is, but kind of give them some guidance on connecting to the didactic content and the knowledge that they're getting from it. Uh, think about recall of the specific content, but also think about um, how did you use that? Um, let's go through the different steps here, gathering the history, doing the exam. Uh, how did the differentials change? And always, was it evidence-based? And for EMS, I would think, uh, is this usually what we see with protocol as well? So out of the hospital, they have a very specific expertise and skill set going back to that and saying, is this realistic for what we would do evidence-based practice in the pre-hospital setting? Um, we also use apps. So how did we use the apps and did we use them to best advantage? My students are gonna use things like the Sanford Guide for Antibiotics, but uh, you all may be using apps to include ACLS or ACLS pocket cards, things like that. Are they using the resources that they would use in practice? So I've included some uh, resources here. There's an excellent course on Coursera that you can get that goes through the essentials for clinical sim simulation across the healthcare professions. Uh, I took this, I think it was about 50 or $60 and it was simply excellent. And it also provided you with a, with a lot of handouts, including the Anaxal standards, um, for uh, the uh, case development template for the Association of Standardized Patient Educators, so you can develop the case for the, the uh, standardized patients. Uh, certainly a great resource is the ALSI user guide from iSimulate that goes step-by-step -step 
on how to use the software to its best advantage. And there are many different YouTubes out there that you can look at as well. And then um, with my colleagues at Duke University School of Nursing several years ago, we also evaluated and published our findings on the effectiveness of this virtual learning platform. And we found that the students really got a lot out of it. They've really valued the experience, but uh, ultimately, did they perform well? And uh, in over in most of the parameters we looked at, uh, they they achieved the uh, goals in 80% of the cases. So thank you very much. To summarize, um, distance-based simulations are an effective and engaging way to reach your students, and particularly at this time when we're not able to get to campus and to do high fidelity simulation in the Sim Center, this is a great option. I think that you'll find that it's a very exciting opportunity, even after we're past this, uh, this crisis that we're in right now. We want to think about the value of distance-based simulations for learning in your program to assimilate the lecture content. So this is a great way to do it and to help them build that brain muscle memory. Um, dis distance-based simulations can be used for testing purposes. I use it more for the learning, but definitely it can provide the opportunity for testing. And this is use of an application that provides monitoring capabilities. And that is what I really liked about iSimulate. Uh, it allows my students to make timely responses. And that is absolutely perfect for acute and critical care, health education, just as you are engaged in. So thank you so much for all you do. I am so thankful for my EMS uh, people every day. Um, we eat a lot of pizza together, we laugh, we cry, we work together, and I'm so appreciative. So emergency care starts with all of you. Keep yourselves safe, and I look forward to taking any questions you may have. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Carmen. We are now going to open up the discussion to our attendees. Meg, first, uh, your, your presentation obviously had a lot to uh, do with iSimulate products. First question is, what suggestions do you have for those of us who aren't using iSimulate products? Sure. I, I had re researched a lot of different products uh, before I actually found iSimulate, and there are a lot out there, so I can't list all of them, uh, but I would say look at the cost and look at whether they can have a timely response for your students. My acute care students need something that is time sensitive, right away and it's very attractive to me to find something that has the cardiac monitor capability on it. Um, you could do something as simple as having a Zoom meeting and doing that in your simulation center, which is very hard to do now. Um, you might be able to go in, into an ED room somewhere and use that. But uh, I have seen one called uh, SimTab. That was really excellent, had monitoring capabilities, was very real time. Um, you really have to look at the cost of different products to see what might be feasible for your specific program. Okay, and how about training students to be standardized uh, patients? Uh, next question is, how can we train our own students to be standardized patients? Well, that is a great question, and I think that there is a lot of opportunity there. I have done that myself, but I had to step back and think about if I have a simulation group, am I taking away from the student's learning opportunity to participate as part of the sim? So that's a decision, but it's something you certainly could look into and, and develop. 
Um, I have done that in the past and said, okay, this week you're going to end up being the standardized patient. Um, and so I'm going to give you a script and you and I are going to talk about what your role is because they really have to understand uh, all of all the different aspects of the simulation if they are going to play the standardized patient. So there is value to it, but you have to think also about, well, that is going to take away their opportunity to be the decision maker. That's okay, because in the simulation lab, there's still going to have be times when uh, people are taking the role of observer. Uh, so it's just another way to play the role. Standardized patients can be expensive, uh, particularly if you're getting, you know, credentialed standardized patients, which is, is optimal. Um, I would say, because I, I had no budget for it when I first did this, um, I thought outside the box. I used neighbors sometimes, and then I didn't have the best of standardized patient uh, experiences. I ended up working with a, a rehab facility, an organization in my hometown, uh, and asked them if they could have some of their residents come act as standardized patients, and I trained them as standardized patients. And at first they did it volunteer, but that was really low cost. And they really appreciated that opportunity to engage with my students. And they actually did a lot of teaching regarding the psychosocial aspect uh, of care. So that was great for nurse practitioner students. So it's possible. How can you train them? I would look at the standards for standardized patients and the resources that are available there. Um, and when you develop your scenarios, they're very simple. So you could um, think of some way to share that with the students so they could be the standardized patient. In your presentation, you mentioned the acronym uh, OLD CARTS. Uh, and uh, one of the attendees is uh, wondering if you could explain that. Uh, I'm not sure what OLD CARTS stands for. Can you explain? Sure. I guess that's a mnemonic that's more specific to uh, maybe nursing education, although I think it applies for all of us. And I'm sure that your students are, are learning the same thing to find out about onset, location, duration, characteristics. So that is a mnemonic that we teach um, our nurse practitioner students for collecting the history of present illness or what's going on right now. Um, there are different mnemonics. There's another one called LOCKSTAM, but basically, um, the, the seven to nine uh, factors that you're going to ask somebody about when you're collecting your history on what's happening now, what's the chief complaint. Okay, uh, so the next question deals with uh, the ability to kind of uh, palpate and smell and feel certain injuries and conditions with, uh, with online learning. Our students are losing the ability to palpate, smell, and feel certain injuries and conditions. Do you have some techniques for how we can teach these very physical things during this time of online learning and also with new students, how do you teach the tactile skills like inserting OPAs and NPAs? Yeah, that's a, a great question and then that certainly is one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now with the pandemic. Um, so I would look at where, where your course is in the program that you're teaching and where you're implementing the distance-based sims. Um, for me, they have had a physical assessment course prior in their program. So that's very helpful. They should have already demonstrated that they know how to palpate or, or where certain positions are. So I do need to reinforce that initial training and education that they've, that they've already had in, in their previous course. Um, for physical assessment classes, we do allow them to demonstrate with using Zoom or to record something and observe them that way. Um, and 
they have to have the camera positioned correctly so that we see that they're doing it appropriately. But I think that that, that can mimic um, being with them physically present in the lab, which we can't do now. But I certainly agree it's not quite the same. What I do with the distance simulations is it's on a Zoom platform, and uh, I will get the screen, and I will make them give me what I need to do, but I perform the physical assessment for them. So if we're doing cardiac, then um, they'll say, I want to listen to heart sounds. And I say, OK, I'll listen to heart sounds. Uh, you know, do I use the bell or the diaphragm? OK, got to listen with the bell. OK, well, now where do I put it? You know, and they'll give me the location for which heart sound they want, and, I'll, and I will physically place it on the standardized patient's chest. Um, so it's the next best thing to having them do that. Um, I will have them give me feedback, for example, if I'm doing an abdominal exam, um, and I'll say, so is this, you know, is this what I need to do? Well, no, this is how you check for CVA tenderness. So it's, it's not perfect, but um, you can do that on the Zoom or WebEx platform screen. Um, and make them ask, you know, tell you what you should be doing so you know they know correct technique. Um, with new students, how do you teach the tactile skills? And that is, that's going to be a, a real challenge. Um, certainly, just with, like with the physical exam, you can go through with some of these procedures. Uh, in that case, you probably are a lot of times going to have to have a mannequin that you are performing it on rather than the standardized patient. Um, and I, I think that's a good question. We cannot completely replace uh, clinical practice, and we're going to need to figure this out as we go along. Uh, but to the best of your ability, you can try to mimic that by performing it on the screen and making them direct you. Kind of segues into our next question here. How would a provider or a student demonstrate uh, competence using the monitor for procedures like defibrillation? So iSimulate has the option to turn on a defibrillator and the students can, uh, can push the button. It also has options for detecting CPR. Um, so we, there are some ways to, to look at this. Demonstrating competence is having a competency. For, for me, I have nurse practitioner competencies that, that tell me what I need to uh, be looking for. And I don't think it's just the monitor. I think it's the whole combination, the experience there of uh, what they are saying during the meeting, how they're interacting with the patient, and how they're directing me to work with the patient based on what they see on the monitor itself. Okay. Uh, could you share your rubric for grading the reflection on the simulation? Yes, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I don't have a copy right here to read off, but, but I broke it down into the different sections um, that I had on the slide on my presentation there. So uh, it uh, includes professional behaviors like introducing yourself, but it also goes moves through collection of the history of present illness, getting any other pertinent history, performing the assessment, diagnostic reasoning. So um, that is how the grading rubric flows. Um, and also inclusive of being, you know, of holistic approach to the patient and thinking about patient goals um, in terms of, of the interventions we're going to do. So I'm happy to share that, and I can send that to EMS World, certainly. Great. Thank you. Um, let's talk about uh, uh, certifying bodies a little bit. Next question is, can you touch on the types of accommodations regarding requirements for patient assessments and patient contacts? 
um, that schools and, and certifying bodies are making during the pandemic. Uh, for instance, are you aware if CoAMPS has endorsed the use of a program like this as a substitute for high fidelity simulation and patient contacts? Yes, so we, we did check into this to make sure we were giving correct information. Uh, and CoAMPS has approved a broader range of approaches for paramedic training programs, um, and that includes simulation to determine competency. So that, that's an accommodation that has been made. For the nursing organizations, uh, we continue to have to have the 500 hours for uh, one particular nurse practitioner specialty. They have to do their clinical, and that has not changed. But they're encouraging us to, uh, above and beyond that, do more uh, virtual simulation to help prepare them for competency. Okay, Sandy is listening in today. She has a question on MIH programs. Can you suggest some ways to conduct these types of simulations specifically for community paramedics or those working in mobile integrated healthcare programs? So I would think, you know, that it, it depends on how you want to develop your scenario. Your scenario can be in any setting. It can be in any topic and thinking about what the needs are, you know, learner-based outcomes and, and what do your learners need to know. So if it's a, a community paramedic setting, um, mobile integrated, you can take any of these and create whatever you need uh, using the software and, and using this platform with having the meeting plus or minus the standardized patient. So as I said, you know, a lot of times you may have a patient who's not even conscious and it doesn't matter that you have uh, a standardized patient. You might want to have a mannequin uh, on one of the windows for the Zoom or WebEx platform uh, to, uh, to demonstrate the, you know, inserting an airway or advanced airway management. Um, so specifically, I would look at the, the needs I would then develop the type of simulation that would go for that particular student or for that particular topic that you're addressing in your educational program. How about feedback from students? Um, do they ever express fears about not having real quote-unquote patient contacts in practice? What are some of the things you say to your online students to ease those fears about not having um, real patient contacts in practice? I think it's really important to, to reassure your students and for us to remain calm as educators right now. Um, this has been something that was largely unforeseen um, and they are going to respond about not being ready if, if we don't uh, give them a very confident front. So um, just trying to stay calm about it and to let them know, I always start these simulations with, this is a safe space. I'm going to make it as real as it can possibly be here. And that's no different whether it's virtual or whether it's in a sim lab. And this is a good place for you to practice safely so that when you do go out into your clinical setting, that you are ready to deal with a live human being. And, um, you know, clinical practice is not going away. They are not simply going to get their license and go out having done virtual simulation. This is really preparing them in a very solid way uh, to go out there and to do their clinical rotations. But, you know, in the foreseeable future, we are not getting rid of clinical practice and precepted uh, clinical experiences. 
we have a couple questions coming in about the, the technology and the actual uh, virtual platform. So Alex has a question. Has the Zoom iPad screen, uh, screen sharing function been more stable or reliable compared to other third-party systems you were using previously? Yes, this is a dream come true for me. Uh, I, I worked out how to do the system like three, four years ago. And when uh, iSimulate let me know that this was a possibility using Zoom, Zoom or WebEx platforms. I don't know if other platforms have started doing it, um, but that I could just connect the iPad and use it like an external monitor has just made it seamless. It is so easy. Um, the first time I did it, I just needed to install a plugin, but it uh, automatically ran me right through it um, and is so simple. Uh, when I first started doing this, and uh, the, the software is called Squirrels, but it's called Reflector, um, it was a little bit clunky. You have to think about the system that you're on. I kept on getting thrown off, and then part of that was that um, the server in the university didn't allow for streaming. Um, and I think I mentioned in my presentation that iSimulate has uh, an airport router that you can use that prevents any problems with that. But, but yes, with that screen sharing option now, it is really seamless and uh, immediately you can see the, um, the iPad image with the monitor and all the different parameters you want to use right on your um, meeting platform. So you mentioned that this can be used uh, on other virtual other platforms besides Zoom or WebEx. What was that um, the software vendor one more time that you use? Uh, it's by a company called Squirrels, but if you Google and you just simply put in Reflector Software, uh, it will take you right to it. Thank you. Uh, next question, would, it instruct, would an instructor be able to share this type of platform with individual groups during an online breakout session? So I have not tried uh, I have not tried having the monitor um, in a breakout session. Um, I would think yes. Um, sorry. Yes, actually. iSimulate says that this is possible to, to have the, the, the screen in the breakout sessions. So I just learned something that I'm going to start using. I have had them go into breakout sessions to talk about one different aspect of the, of the sim. Uh, and I've had them break out uh, for parts of the debriefing, uh, but I guess you can actually use the iSimulate uh, in breakout sessions as well. Do you record the online simulations? Yes, I do. Um, the, um, the citation that I gave all of you uh, was an evaluation of the distance-based simulation program. Um, and we recorded all of those, but I typically do record the online simulations because when they go back and they do their reflection and their case analysis, I have no problem with them going back and, and watching the recording uh, and being able to step back and think about, this might have been better, uh, we did this pretty well. So I like for them to have the option to go back and look at themselves and watch the simulation training mannequins earlier. Are you, um, are you broadcasting a high-fidelity mannequin with the iSimulate monitor screen? Very infrequently. Uh, if, I have, um, if I'm doing a trauma scenario, for example, and I want to put in a chest tube or I'm going to um, have them talk me through a center line insertion, uh, then I will have some type of a task trainer or a mannequin. I don't use the high-fidelity mannequin in terms of needing the monitoring. I don't need that. Um, the iSimulate does that. 
but um, more so I might use a task trainer in one of the windows um, so that they can uh, practice and go through the steps of doing some of the more high-level uh, skills. Question from Amy here. Are, are we supposed to be opening the meeting room on the student iPad? No. So there's three, there's th three things here. You're going to have the facilitator iPad, which is talking to the student or monitor iPad. Those two are talking. But, but you're going to have the, the meeting room on your desktop or laptop computer. Um, so the student iPad, which is the view you want to see, you don't want to have, you don't want to be looking on your meeting at the facilitator, which is manipulating the different platforms. The image you want of the, the monitor uh, is what you want to mirror onto your meeting platform. And how about sounds? Uh, does iSimulate have lung sounds for audible assessment or heart sounds? Uh, do you add any sound effects in the background? I usually don't. Um, I actually find that the um, the beeping of the monitor, um, unless it's a testing situation, um, can really distract students and make them much, much more anxious. Most of my scenarios I'm doing as a learning activity. If it's teaching, then I probably have the monitoring sound on. I have tried, and iSimulate does have a nice library of different sounds that you can, can use. Um, Sometimes I will use the breath sounds because you'll want crackles or ronchi, things like that. Um, but I have also recorded some of my own. So they, they do have a menu. I don't use them very often. Um, most of the time I will tell them I hear crackles in the right bass or something like that. Um, and sometimes I will even mute the monitor sounds with the beeping of the heart tones because uh, it, it increases their stress level hugely. And I'm trying to decrease the stress by doing these simulations and having them gather. And related to that, how about the visuals? Uh, Michelle wants to know, are you actually taking a photo of the slide or the EKG, or are you doing a screenshot that you can upload or, or download? A lot of times I will take a photo um, if that's the best way I can do it. If it's something that I can share and then email to the iPad, then I will open up the attachment, which is the JPG of the EKG or the chest X-ray, uh, and then I will upload that and share that. It's a much clearer resolution. Um, Reality 360, I talked a lot about ALSI, which is what I have at this point um, in my institution, but Reality 360 has high resolution 12 leads. And uh, um, if you look through the libraries and the scenarios that iSimulate has, there's a lot of uh, options for you there as well. So you can do it anyway. You can take a photo. Um, very often you can take a screenshot or you can email it to yourself and then upload it into your images um, in your gallery on the iPad itself. So how about um, if you want to implement a system like this quickly, we have a remark here from a listener. This was built over a long period of time. All this is great, but we are in a position now to come up with this content now in real time with little or no preparation and without opportunity to practice it before we implement it. Are there any packages with prefabricated lesson plans and scenarios complete with learning objectives, et cetera? So this is something I've talked to Chris Krobeth that uh, I simulate about, and it's an idea that I got because we're in this pandemic now. Um, I do these fairly quickly, 
And I think the, the, the best thing to do is to look at the Anaxal standards and to get that case template that I uh, had talked about from, uh, for standardized patients that really helps you in quick little boxes to write down what it is you want to do and start with objectives. So I know we're doing this quickly, but if you think about what do I need to teach, what are my objectives for this experience, and then if you have that template tool, um, I just printed it out and filled in the blanks for my sims, and I was I am able to write them really pretty quickly. I'm going to give make sure that you all have my email, but this is the kind of thing I'm very very happy to help with, and it's fascinating to me to think outside the box and to get away from advanced practice nursing to think about what you all in EMS are needing. So I'd be glad to help you with that um, if you would like it. Okay, we have a, a couple questions here uh, related to a group uh, training together. So Sandy wants to know, with the limited number of scenarios being done, does everyone in the group get to be the leader on a given day? And then Margot has a follow-up to that. Can multiple providers participate in one distance simulation to simulate teamwork? Sure. I, I have told my students that they are welcome to come to other groups' uh, simulations but I want to make sure that, that they each get to play a role if that is the day for their sim group. So they can visit and they can be observers, but I want to make sure that the people in that simulation group all get an opportunity. And I do make sure that they, um, that they rotate. So it's a, it's a good question. It became very cumbersome, but I've made sure I, I, if I reduced the number of sims I did in a semester, I did more sims and uh, more simulations with less, sorry, so more simulation groups with less number of simulations over the semester. Um, you want to really look for that sweet spot just as you do if you're rotating through a sim center. About four people in a group is really optimal. Okay, we have a question from Paul here related to uh, kind of healthcare education in general. How do you feel about the amount of clinical time that healthcare professionals are required to have before entering the field? My clinical was only 12 hours in an ER. That did not seem to be anywhere near enough time. Any comments on that? Well, we certainly, we are in this time where everybody is talking about the importance of interprofessional uh, learning activities. So I have to agree, uh, one of the best experiences I ever had as an emergency nurse was that uh, when I started at UNC Chapel Hill as a staff nurse, I went out for, uh, for three clinical days with EMS. And it's amazing what you learn just by, by having that experience. Um, we are required for our certification exam to have 500 hours in a specific population. Um, in doing what we do before we can uh, graduate and sit for our certification exam. Um, so I, I don't think that I could, could speak to whether that's an adequate amount of time for somebody who's not in my particular field, but I do think students are never really going to feel like they're absolutely ready to go the day that they graduate. Um, they're going to have to get out there and get their feet wet. Um, but I'm also really glad to see that. When I see a student who feels like they should have had more, that makes me more confident that they're going to be an excellent clinician um, because they know that they're, they're not ready to just go take on the worst case and be a novice. How about uh, deliberate pauses? Alex wants to know, do you eliminate deliberate pauses toward the end of the semester or in, an evaluate, or in evaluative scenarios? Yes, 
that they do it on their own. And I have never seen that I started the semester, a lot of times you're doing a lot of hand-holding. Uh, very often I will not have them do the case analysis for credit with the first simulation. And there are a lot of deliberate pauses. Um, they will be all over the place in week one. Uh, and by the end of the semester, they, they naturally seem to take it over on their own, and I'm really not having them uh, stop and pause. Um, very often a, a leader will go, okay, everybody, now where are we at? You know, this is going to eliminate pulmonary embolism. Um, so that tends to happen naturally. And if I do it in an OSCE or an evaluative situation, then no, I don't do any deliberate pauses. It, it runs through until they get to the end point. And how about the ideal length of time? Uh, what have you found to be the best practice in terms of the best length of time for online simulation? The sweet spot for mine tend to be about 20 to 25 minutes. Um, and it's okay when it's learning. Um, and so it's about five minutes of introduction, 20 to 25 minutes to run the, the sim itself, and then about 30 to 35 minutes for debrief. So I try to keep it within an hour. Uh, testing scenarios should go about 12 to 15 minutes for the actual sim. And um, how about uh, skills, ver uh, skills verification? Can you talk a little bit about how best to use online simulation like this for skills verification of providers? So I think um, if I could get some clarification on skills, um, if it's a skill like chest tube insertion or advanced airway, that's going to be with a, a mannequin and they're going to need to be telling me. They're definitely going to have to come in for, um, we have on-campus immersions once per term uh, and they would have, this would be practice, and then they would have to run through it and actually demonstrate it for us before they would be allowed to perform that skill uh, in the clinical setting. Um, so um, I also look at skills in terms of um, diagnostic reasoning and, uh, and performing the clinical assessment. Um, but for, for technical skills, for psychomotor um, skills like IVs, CPR, uh, things like that, um, that would be using a task trainer or a high-fidelity simulator, uh, and then always having them do that with me when they come to the on-campus uh, experience. And the, the system that you described, does it also include the ability to train BLS providers and EMTs, uh, not just paramedics? You can really use this for anybody. Um, the reality system, the I simulate, the other I simulate system, has ALS and BLS monitoring capabilities, and there is a way to uh, to monitor CPR as well. Talked about uh, group practice a little bit earlier. Uh, do your students participate in any interdisciplinary scenarios, and can you describe them? I am working on that. I'm actually building a new program, and previously we we did not have that, but uh, this is going to be very much interdisciplinary um, as in my new program. So I'm going to be working with EMS. I am going to be working with our uh, PA school, uh, and we're going to have pharmacists. We have uh, a lot of different opportunities. I think that working with EMS has so much potential. We, you know, look how many times people, uh, you know, the, the staff in the emergency department, EMS comes in and they're trying to talk and give their report and people don't stop and listen. Uh, and we need to be working together. So I think that 
it's a great idea. And yes, I am definitely incorporating that into uh, my program as I build a new program. Good question from Nicholas here. If students are making the wrong decisions, do you just have the patient deteriorate and have the student deal with their mistakes, or do you use your stop points to recenter the student? Also, how do you facilitate discussions in the distance learning environment format so we're not waiting until the entire scenario is over to address the issues? That's great, and that does happen. So um, it takes a little bit of practice figuring out how how far you let them go astray um, before. Um, I do set the expectation in the very beginning of the, uh, of the scenario, you know, this is the roles, these are the expectations, it is going to take this long for the scenario, blah, 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 and I make it very clear that because this is a learning environment and because in clinical, one person would talk to another. This is a team effort. We do have somebody who's the leader who's in the role of the NP for me um, today. But you're going to work as a team. So if you have a question, uh, use standardized communication. All of my students uh, go through team steps training. So they will, uh, they will come up with the ICUS mnemonic or uh, use SBAR. Um, and so they should speak up and they should work together and help each other out. So if there's an error, they should bring that up. They should discuss it just as they would in the clinical environment. If they're going way off, uh, you're going to know it because chaos will ensue and people will be going, you know, people will be jumping in and giving different orders. When that starts, uh, I'll just do a deliberate pause and I'll say, okay. And I will talk to the person who's in charge, uh, ask for some clarification. Is this really what you want? Okay. I'll let them go a little bit wrong. If, they, if the entire group continues to go down a wrong path, then I'll let the patient deteriorate. Um, and uh, at some point, I will say, okay, we're going to move on here, and we're going to talk about it in the debrief. And that segues into a question here from Chris. Can you talk a little bit more about how to make students feel like distance or in-person scenarios are truly a safe space? I teach many firefighters, and they always feel like we are testing, not really learning. Yeah, I, I take time with mine and I say it right out front. We are not testing you here. This is a safe space. This is, you are learners. Um, and so we're trying to get you ready so that when you are practicing in the sim lab or when you are in your clinical rotations, that you have had an opportunity to think this out ahead of time and to do the right thing. Um, so I think for me, that is crucial. Um, a lot of uh, the other applications I've seen of different uh, different software, including iSimulate, um, they they use them for testing, and I also do. I think it's a great opportunity, a great platform for testing. But I'm very clear when it's learning, and also it's going to take me. You know, there, there's it's going to be a little bit of a longer experience. I set an hour for those sims, and I tell them to save two hours in case the debrief goes long. And uh, from the very, very start, they are told this is a learning uh, environment here and it's safe to make mistakes. Okay, and I think we have uh, some time here to get to a few more questions. Thanks again to Dr. Carmen for staying over to help us get through these. Uh, interesting question here about scheduling. With all the varied locations and time zones of students, what are some suggestions you have for best practices and tools for how and when to schedule the online simulations together? Yes, that can be a challenge. Um, I had a student in Tokyo one time, and I was on the East Coast, 
Um, so I did need to speak with that student when they enrolled in the course and say, you know, that, that's kind of a stretch. Um, generally, I will try to do them in the mid-afternoon so that the people on the West Coast aren't getting up too, too early. Uh, and I give them plenty of notice from the very first moment of the semester. In fact, I'll send a, um, a message out as soon as enrollment is, is in there for the course and let them know what dates they need to save and please try and get that time off uh, in order to participate in the distance-based simulations. They are required to pass the course, so um, they need to plan ahead of time and be present for those, for those scheduled uh, appointments. Okay, uh, getting a question in here about student-centered objectives and testing-centered objectives. You spoke in your presentation about student-centered and testing-centered objectives. I'm not sure I fully understand the difference. Can you explain that a little bit? So the outcomes for each of the simulations should be student-centered. They should be participant-centered. It's the, the outcomes that we want them to demonstrate. It's not about us. Um, these are about their outcomes. Um, but they are learning-centered, and I'm, I, maybe I had a typo in one of the, one of the slides, but they are, are going to be either learning-centered or testing-centered. Um, am, am I trying to make sure that they learn something, or am I trying to show that they are going to demonstrate something uh, in each simulation? My testing-centered ones almost always, sorry, um, I have competencies for my students that they have to meet in order to sit for their certification exam. So my testing outcomes for a simulation are very often verbatim the competencies that they need to demonstrate for certification. Okay, and a couple of our attendees want to know if, uh, if you can provide participants a copy of the PowerPoint that you used in this presentation. Uh, the, it can be used to pitch this to management and the bean counters. Also, uh, can you give us your contact information again, please? Sure. Um, my contact information is um, M-C-A-R, M as in Mary, A as in Apple, N as in Nancy, 20, at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me on the faculty directory at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill at the School of Nursing. Uh, and so you can get my faculty email and contact information there. And I am help, happy to help you with any of this. Uh, I did tell EMS World I'm happy to share the PowerPoints and they can send those to you as well. Great, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we, we are archiving this webinar so you'll be able to um, find that uh, shortly. That's at emsworld.com slash webinars. Um, Dr. Carmen, we can't thank you enough for putting together this webinar, staying over to answer some uh, questions from attendees and sharing your knowledge. Uh, one more time, we would like to thank iSimulate for sponsoring the webinar and helping bring the presentation to you. Um, Meg, any closing comments before we sign off for today? Not really. I just want to thank you all for inviting me here today. Um, as I thought about this and prepared this presentation, I just see that we have so much more in common um, than we usually think. And if there's any way that I can help people in developing these simulations, it is doable. Uh, the students really love it. They feel like they can engage and they really feel like they learn. So I would encourage you to give it a try. And if you need any help, please just let me know.
Thank you very much. Again, that uh, URL is emsworld.com slash webinars. Keep an eye on, the, on that page for the archived version of this presentation and also to see uh, the upcoming uh, webinars that we are scheduling. Um, and uh, on that note, our next presentation is going to be Friday, April 17th at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. We will be joined by Eric Bauer and Tyler Christofuli. Eric is CEO of FlightBridge ED. Tyler is a flight medic with LifeLink in Minnesota. So they will be uh, joining us and speaking on ventilator management and best practices in light of the COVID pandemic. So please join us for that. Um, if, you, if you're not getting emails from us, please go to emsworld.com and click subscribe. You can get on our list to receive all of our e-newsletters as well as uh, email updates for our upcoming webinars. So that's going to do it for today. Again, thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today and for what you're doing every day in the field. Please stay safe. Have a great holiday weekend, and we will connect again on the next webinar. Thanks, Meg. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye now. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020, at EMS World Expo.